Well, I know that you were refreshed from the concert last night and ready to study the scriptures. So open your Bibles to the book of Joshua. There are a couple of study guides on the little table in the back if you didn't get one when you came in. Sometimes in life, we get ready for a change. Have you ever been ready for a change? Sometimes it's just a change of pace that we're looking for. But maybe we'd like to have a new house or maybe a new automobile or some kind of a change. And change can be refreshing. But there are some things that don't seem to change. When you decorated for the holidays, you probably used some red green, maybe a little white and gold thrown in. You probably didn't use blue or yellow or fuchsia or any of those because we just typically have traditional holiday colors. Christopher mentioned in his prayer, God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now today we're going to take a look at some things that don't change, unchanging factors in the life of Joshua, and see how that relates to us. Dr. Francis Schaeffer has written a book, Joshua and the Flow of Biblical History. And in this little book, he talks about the importance of the biblical book of Joshua as a bridge between the Pentateuch and the rest of the Bible. And you'll see in a few minutes why we need that. So our outline for today is taken from Dr. Schaeffer's book, Joshua and the Flow of Biblical History. Critics of the Bible have concocted the documentary hypothesis to say that Moses did not write the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And they would say that a variety of editors drawing from anonymous sources compiled the first five books as long as 900 years after Moses lived. We would say that's not the case. Of course, their thinking is based on evolutionary ideas. And they would say that uh, these things that you read in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus came from oral tradition. And of course, oral tradition would be subject to embellishment and exaggeration and even downright error. So can we really depend upon Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy... And then finally we get to Joshua where we say, well, that something begins there that's new. It's kind of a new God and people are getting settled down. They're not nomadic any longer. But is that the case? I would suggest to you that we have the same God giving some new instructions, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. H.G. Wells, a British historian and writer, is best known for his... Uh, book, The War of the Worlds. And a condensation of that was given in a radio program, I believe in 1938. And that really got folks' attention as he just launched right into the story. And people began packing up their cars to escape the city. They began to go to church to pray. And all kind of things were going on. Uh, people were devising homemade gas masks because it had been announced that a Martian invasion had hit the earth. Well, this same guy, H.G. Wells, writes a book called The Outlines of History. And in it, he gives the view of modern man with regard to the scriptures and a number of other things. Here's what he says. 
It must be clear from what has gone before that primitive man, much less his ancestral apes and his ancestral Mesozoic mammals, could have no idea of God or religion. Only very slowly did his brain and his powers of comprehension become capable of such general conceptions. Religion is something that has grown up with and through human association. And God has been and is still being discovered by man. This is a conception of God in the mind of man that he's talking about. And, of course, he would say that's where God comes from. That would be a very different approach than the genius of modern man, Don Landis. And in this book, he talks about many things we see in the world today that can't be explained that ancient man was able to accomplish. In Baalbek, Lebanon, there are these colossal monoliths, 1,500 tons. How did they get those things standing upright? We'd be hard-pressed to do that with construction equipment even today. And the pyramids and all these other things that we have considered uh, before, how did it happen if these guys were just coming in out of the caves? Well, we don't believe that they were. And we don't believe what the critics would say that writing was not possible in Israel at the time of Moses. They were cranking that up over in China somewhere. But the Bible says... Exodus 17:14 The Lord said to Moses, "Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua." You remember at the battle with Amalek. So God is telling Moses to do something that I believe Moses could do. And it goes on from there, Numbers 33:2. Now Moses wrote down the starting points of their journeys at the command of the Lord. And this took place about 1400 B.C. And if you wanted to know precisely where they went out in the wilderness, Moses leaves us a detailed record of that that God commanded him to do. Deuteronomy 31.9 So Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And then Deuteronomy 31.24 So it was when Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book when they were finished. Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant, saying, Take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. God's instructions continued in that passage, and he told Moses to tell the priest from time to time to get the book out of the Ark, and read it before all the people. And that would be men, women, children, strangers who are within the gates. Now, the book was not a book like this at that time. That's how it's translated. But it would have been a book like this, this the small version. And so you had to have, uh, if you wanted to <coughs> carry an entire Bible, you'd need a wheelbarrow to carry all the different <laughs> scrolls in the Bible. But it was written down. And the people did have access to it through the priests. No one could have their own copy because uh, Johann Gutenberg didn't come along until about 1450. And certainly that changed things because then people could have their own copy of the Bible. But the book was still accessible to the people. And you can read in the book of Ezra about the whole group coming together in the rain, listening 
for the entire morning to the law being read. Deuteronomy 31:19. Now write this down for yourselves, write this song for yourselves, and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. Critics also said that oral traditions were communicated to successive generations in song, also subject to error. But this says that God told Moses to write down the song first and then teach it to all the people. Other parts of Scripture verify that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, Ezra 6.18. Then they appointed the priests to their divisions and the Levites in their order for service to God and Israel as it is written in the book of Moses. So the first unchanging factor is the written book. I trust that uh, everyone has something to write with. The written book. And we're going to see how important that is. We have already looked at Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate therein day and night, so that you may observe to do according to all that's written therein. Then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. The central reference point for the people of Israel was the Bible. It was not their feelings. It was not their own ideas about God. It was not the ideas of the Canaanite people about God, although sometimes they slipped over into that category. Jehovah's leading was always in accord with the book, and it still is today. And that's the reason the written book that is an unchanging factor in the life of God's people is so very important. You've got to consult the book. And we're told in that verse to talk about the book, Meditate on the book and obey its commands in everyday life. The book had authority in Moses' day, in Joshua's day, the moment that it was written. It was the law of God. It was a word from God. No one was left wondering what to do when Moses died. But what if a prophet came along and told you something that you should do according to God? Well, he better be telling you the same thing that the book said, or too bad for the prophet, Deuteronomy 13:5. But that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away the evil out of your midst. Better have it right if you are a prophet. Pretty dangerous business in that day. The canon or the standard of sacred writings continued to grow. We see in the book of Joshua that someone is writing who lived after Moses. Because Moses didn't go into the promised land, but this person did. In Joshua 5, 1, it talks about the kings of the Amorites and the kings of the Canaanites. They heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan River from before the children of Israel until we passed over. 
we don't know who the we is, but whoever's writing this down passed over the Jordan into the promised land. And the writing goes on. Joshua 24, verse 25. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and set them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. Took a great stone, set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Here's the standard. We're not in the dark as to what God would say to fallen man or to redeemed man. We don't have to depend on a lot of extraneous things. We can go to the book and know what God would have for us. And besides that, we have the Holy Spirit to help us understand the book. The ordinary person can understand the message from God. When I was a little boy in Biloxi, Mississippi, in the Catholic Church, the liturgy was entirely in Latin. How many people in that church do you think knew and understood Latin? Maybe the high school Latin teacher, but that was about it. And it was that way in all of the Catholic churches until the Second Vatican Council in 1964. But for the Protestants, it changed in the 1500s when men like Martin Luther and John Wycliffe uh, and others began to translate the Bible, William Tyndale, into the language of the common people because they believed that God's Word is for everyone, not just some priestly class who would be the only ones who could understand it. Second changing factor. Unchanging factor, excuse me. The power of God. The power of God doesn't change. Now we're going to see a little bit more about that. But turn to Joshua 3 and verse 14 if you have your Bibles. The three days are up. We've gotten that soul saved from Jericho, Rahab, that we talked about. Uh, we've gotten the cleansing made among the people, sanctified. And we've gotten the division made among the tribes who didn't want to go into the Promised Land but wanted to settle on the east side of the Jordan River. So now it's time to march. Beginning in verse 14, So it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priest who bore the Ark dipped into the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest, that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam. That's the name of the city. The city that is beside Zeratan. So the waters that went down into the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, failed and were cut off. And the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priest who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. This is at flood stage now. And all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. And chapter 4, verse 18, And it came to pass when the priest who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet touched the dry land, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. Do you have a problem 
that you want God to fix this morning, then you're probably going to have to step in the water. Sometimes we want to see God part the thing first, and then I can go across. But nothing happened until the priest stepped into the water. Now, we may talk about uh, that a little bit more on another uh, Sunday. Chapter 4, verse 14. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. Even the wording was the same as in Moses' day, that the water stood up as an heap. Exodus 15, 8, With the blast of thy nostrils the waters were gathered together, the flood stood upright as an heap, and the deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. Joshua 4:23, The Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you crossed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over that all the people of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. God did it for Moses in his day. God is doing it for Joshua in his day. Here's the question. Will God do it for us in our day? Now, to the Israelite people, this crossing of the Jordan River was a tremendous symbol of the continuity of authority and power of God. As he had worked for Moses, so he was going to work for Joshua. The Jordan River is a fast-flowing river for its size. It drops about 600 feet over 65 miles. It has 27 sizable rapids and cascades. It's about 100 feet wide, but in flood stage, it widens to about a half mile. You can see why the people of Jericho felt pretty good until they heard about God parting the Red Sea because somehow an army would have to get across that Jordan River. About three feet deep uh, just normally, but swelling to ten feet deep in the harvest time, which is the time at which they're crossing. So this business of parting the waters was not just some apparition that some of the older folks thought up. There were those who were there crossing the Jordan River who had been children and young people back at the Red Sea. Can you imagine them telling their children what it was like? Hey, this is just like it was back then because it's the same God with the same power that is available to Joshua and we're going to suggest is available to us as well. So the third unchanging factor the supernatural leader. The supernatural leader. Now look what happens in Joshua 5 and verse 13. Joshua 5 and verse 13. Joshua has an experience much like Moses had at the burning bush. Look at this. And it came to pass, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but as a commander of the army of the Lord have I come. 
In other words, uh, I'm the guy that's running the show here. I'm not picking sides of this deal. Then the commander, uh, excuse me, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Could this be an angel? Well, no, you don't worship angels. It couldn't just be a man. Who could it be? Jesus, I think it's Jesus, a Christophany, the Old Testament appearance of the pre-incarnate Lord. And here he is, captain of the Lord's host. Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. It's king and it's mighty men of valor. That's precisely the experience Moses had at the burning bush. He was confronted by a person. He couldn't see the person, but the person was talking to him. And the person said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Joshua, Moses, Zach, Max, Tom, the God of us all. Same supernatural leader with the same power. And amazingly, we've got the same book right here. Everybody's got the book. Probably got six or eight of them at the house and a couple of them on the electronic uh, data there. So the good news, the three unchanging factors are still in force today. 1 Corinthians 14.37 If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. Precisely what Moses said. Paul is saying, 2 Thessalonians 2.15 Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, that's the things that don't change, God's traditions, not man's traditions, whether by word or by our epistle. And 2 Peter 1.19 This is probably the definitive passage on this. So we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you will do well to heed as a light in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. There was a time in my life when I really needed to hear a word from the supernatural leader and see his definitive power. It was in 1972, I was 31 years old. And Yvonne and I had decided that we wanted to leave the family business and get into the Lord's business. Last Sunday, we talked about the most exciting thing in the world, a changed life. And we were beginning to see some of that, and we wanted to see a whole lot more. So I joined the staff of a large church in a large city as youth director coming from a small church in a small town. And I became immediately very discouraged because I found out that a youth director was really just a glorified activities director. And that wasn't what I wanted to do. wasn't what I thought I signed up to do. And I was running myself ragged 
trying to keep up with the activities of five different large high schools in that town. And besides that, uh, parental discipleship of their own children seemed to be weak as part of the youth program. And not only that, but some parents were looking to me as a professional to rear their children. Can you imagine? I was on staff. I was being paid a salary. And uh, that was sometimes to me very frustrating. And I could see that I wasn't doing parents a lot of favors by just uh, having all that stuff there so that they didn't have to be involved with their own children. Not everybody was like that, but a lot of times it was that way. So one day, I was sitting around in an old beat-up school bus in a parking lot in Six Flags in Georgia. And I was the driver of the bus, of course, and we had that bus jam-packed with junior high students, three to a seat, and their high school and college chaperones. And we were there with all the rest of the Christian young people from all over the southeast, I guess. And I looked around and started counting buses. And you wouldn't believe how many church buses there were in that lot. And then I started multiplying the number of buses by the cost that it cost us to take our bus there. And we got by pretty cheap. And then I thought, wow, that would buy a whole lot of Bibles. Now, there's nothing wrong with Six Flags, and everybody needs to go and have a good time. But I was just thinking uh, somebody else could be taking these people to Six Flags, and I might be giving out the Bible or something like that. So I really knew that I needed to get a word from the Lord. So I had a plan. Now, if there ever was a woman who helped her husband, it must be Yvonne. Because in June 11th of 1972, Yvonne got on a Greyhound bus. In fact, there were two buses, and they were full of high school and college students headed for the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, Texas, and Explo 72, a huge evangelical conference sponsored by Campus Crusade for Christ. I was headed to the wilderness of Jones County, Mississippi, for 10 days of prayer and fasting because I really needed to get in touch with the Lord. So Vaughn was taking care of my duties in Dallas where you don't sleep and you don't eat and you just go all the time, 24 hours a day. It was very exciting. But I was calling upon the Lord and trying to figure out uh, what I was going to do because I just didn't want to be youth director any longer. But I knew I couldn't just walk out and quit. You just don't do things that way. So I needed an honorable way to do something, and I was stuck, and I knew it. My hope was that I would get a word from the Lord. So I did get the answer from the Lord, but not during that time. It came a little bit later down the line. I went back to Birmingham. I poured myself into the work, and two things happened. Our church had just begun a Christian school, and I was asked to teach Bible at the school. And our church also had just begun an extension seminary where all the really best Bible professors from around the country could fly down to Birmingham and teach, and you didn't have to pack up the family and go to St. Louis or somewhere. So I took advantage of both of those opportunities that the Lord gave, 
And it changed my life and really made my life uh, set in a direction that's carried me on to today. It shaped the remainder of my life. Now, let's get a review. We've got three things here. The written book, the power of God, the supernatural leader. If you need a word, you can get a word. You can get a word from the leader. You can see his power at work in your life, but you've got to really want it. And there may be some sacrifice involved. First factor, reviewing the unchanging book, Deuteronomy 12:32. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. Now, there's one subtle danger in our day, many subtle dangers, but one that Paul preached about several months ago. Pitting the spirit against the mind and depending for guidance on feelings, intuitive hunches, impressions, circumstances, random Bible verses, and notions of the heart instead of going to the book and reasoning things out with God. God said, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Having peace about a matter is never mentioned in the Bible as a means of finding God's will. Now, I know we like to feel good about the things that we're getting ready to do as God's will, but the Bible just doesn't mention that. I wouldn't say that Christ had a peaceful feeling in the Garden of Gethsemane when he knew he was going to be crucified the next day. But he knew that it was God's will. God was speaking to it. Mysticism is characterized by an appeal to the feelings as the predominant or normative source of knowledge of God and his will. B.B. Warfield was a great theologian in his day at Princeton Seminary before it became liberal. Here's what he said. When he sinks within himself, he finds feelings, not conceptions. His is an emotional, not a conceptional religion, and feelings, emotions, though not inaudible, are not articulate. He goes on to say, that Jones should worship the God within him turns out ultimately to mean that Jones shall worship Jones. And he says a couple of other things that I think would be instructive to us. Evangelical Christianity interprets all religious experience by the normative revelation of God recorded for us in the Holy Scriptures and guides and directs and corrects it from these Scriptures and thus molds it into harmony with what God in his revealed word lays down as the normal Christian life. The mystic, on the other hand, tends to substitute his religious experience for the objective revelation of God recorded in the written word as the source from which he derives his knowledge of God, or at least to subordinate the expressly revealed word as the less direct and convincing source of knowledge of God to his own religious experience. The result is that the external revelation is relatively depressed in value, if not totally set aside. One more uh, short paragraph. There's nothing more important, says B.B. Warfield, in the age in which we live than to bear constantly in mind that all the Christianity of Christianity rests precisely on external authority. 
Religion, of course, we can have without external authority. For man is a religious creature and will function religiously always and everywhere. But the product, but product of man's religious sentiment, excuse me, but Christianity, no, Christianity rests on external authority. And for that very good reason, it is not a product of man's religious sentiment, but it is a gift from God. To ask us to set aside external authority and throw ourselves back on what we can find within us alone, call it by whatever you choose, religious experience, the Christian consciousness, the inner light, the eminent divine, is to ask us to discard Christianity and to revert to natural religion. Well, I don't think we have any mystics uh, here this morning, but uh, sometimes we might have a tendency to lean over toward that direction. So how, do I, how do I really feel about this? The important thing is, how does God feel about this? And He has given it to us in His Word. Revelation twenty-two eighteen. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life from the holy city, and from the things that are written in this book. That didn't mean this person lost their salvation. That meant that they didn't have their salvation to begin with. Then the second factor, the unchanging power. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. you know what it says. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Now that word for authority is exousia, authority in power. It's one thing to have the power, but do you have the authority to use the power? Christ now, seated at the right hand of the Father, has all authority to use all the power of God. And he says amazingly to us in Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now that power in that verse is dunamis, force or exploding power. God has both. And we can call upon him when we need that authority or power to do whatever needs to be done. We'll say another word about that. Third factor, the unchanging supernatural leader. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. That means in the wilderness they had the cloud that was leading them. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. The supernatural leader was with them there in the wilderness. He was with Joshua. He was with God's people all the way through, and he is with us today. Matthew twenty-eight twenty. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now, what I've said begs some questions, doesn't it? Because somebody would say, what's all this stuff about power? 
you can't even park Barron's Creek, much less the Guadalupe River. And what do we say to that? Well, I say, I don't need to park the Guadalupe River. There's a bridge constructed for me, and I just go right across on the bridge. And Barron's Creek is dried up most of the time anyway. (laughs) So the power is available primarily. God can do anything he wants to. But the power is available primarily for what purpose? To promote the kingdom. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And many times we see amazing things happen with regard to the promotion of the kingdom. Do you all read these books like The Heavenly Man? Talking about people in other countries and cultures who are Christians and these miraculous things happen. Well, why don't we see things like that happening? Do you believe we could? I believe we could. I've seen some pretty miraculous things happen in my life. But you've got to really want it. South Korea, 5 a.m. in the morning. What are Christian people doing in South Korea at 5 a.m. in the morning? They're praying. They're having a huge prayer meeting. Why? Because 25 miles up the road, those big guns are pointed right at them. Now, I'm sure that's not the only reason, but I'm sure they're asking God to protect the church and to protect their land. You've got to be pretty serious to get up and go somewhere to a church to pray at 5 a.m. in the morning. Now, I'm not suggesting that's what we need to do. I'm just saying, if you really want the power, if you really want to see something in your life that's going to be connected with promoting the kingdom not parting the Guadalupe if you want to see that if you really desire it and you're willing to pursue it I believe that you will see it do you see anything like that happening in Cambodia Andrew you see some things don't you yes it's kind of new and it's kind of fresh well What do you want for Christmas? A changed life, maybe? It is available. But you've got to really want it. And you've got to be willing to do whatever it takes to get it. All you have to do is step on in the water and trust the Lord. But what about when the water gets up to here? You just keep on trusting. He'll either help you float across or He will part the waters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the testimony of this amazing book that you've given us. And as I read it, uh, it's hard for me to believe that these are the same words that the covenanters read in their day, that the reformers read, that the people were reading during World War II when the outcome was in question, that people throughout the ages have read parts of these things that Moses and the priest read to the people in his day. We thank you that you have preserved your word. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a great confidence in your word because it points us to you. Thank you that you never leave us or forsake us, that you will be with us always, even unto the end of the world. We need your presence. We don't want to do anything that would grieve the Spirit 
or that would quench the Spirit so that your presence might be withdrawn from us temporarily. We want to have the full guidance of your Spirit through the Word. So we ask you to help us to live lives that would be pleasing to you. And then we pray, Lord, that we might desire to see your kingdom advanced and that we might desire it to the extent that we would be willing to invest in it, not just our resources, but ourselves. And we ask that you would, uh, even today, show us your power, your majesty, as we would go to sing some Christmas carols, even if it would just be to bring encouragement to some people who would be hearing. Uh, we do pray that there would be those whose heart would be moved because they would realize that they need a closer relationship with you or perhaps a relationship at all. We thank you for teachers and for preachers and for moms and dads and grandparents and others who have taught us the stories from history in this book, the Bible. And we ask that we might be diligent in passing on that favor to others who are growing up now with whom we have the opportunity to communicate. Lord, thank you for the people in this church. I ask your blessings upon us during this holiday season. We pray that we might be able to encourage some in this community to come to a Christmas Eve service where uh, your son would be exalted. And uh, Lord, we ask now that you would guide our thoughts and our emotions as we prepare to worship you. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.